You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Rough seas are nothing new here. Storms in the Bering Strait are notoriously violent and frequent. My friend Devin Vaughn, who walked the Mexican dunes with me, used to work on an aircraft carrier in the late 1980s, and he said that even on such a huge ship, when passing between Alaska and Siberia, veteran sailors would be vomiting. Rogue waves hit the ships so hard, the ships so hard that toilets on board blew like geysers. This roughness is partly a function of the sea being shallow. On average, the Bering Sea is only 100 feet deep, negligible compared with the Pacific with an average of 14,000 feet deep, or the Atlantic at an average of 12,800 feet. This water is practically more a veneer than a sea, an epicontinental water body that turns the space between Siberia and Alaska into a wave-amplifying slosh pan. It didn't take much to imagine the sea gone. I drained it back to the ice age. I watched it shrink as a dry inland sun warmed us in this rock stack. Back to sea level minimum, 340 feet below now, water rolled back to the horizon until there was no more and only land stood before us. This is what it was like here. The land was steppe generally flat and treeless as it is now. You would have seen woolly mammoths, bison, horses, camels, high-shouldered direwolves, and a variety of rabbits, voles, and glittering little summer butterflies. Researchers drilling into the mucky floors of the Bering Sea have found peat, pollen, and terrestrial sediment, evidence of dry land now under a hundred feet of water. You're writing about the end of the world, my mom asked as I rubbed her hands. That's what you're working on now? Kind of, I said, eyes still scanning the foam-waved rollers, seeing them gone. I, I don't like thinking about that sort of thing, she said. Do you really think it's going to happen? What? The end of the world. It's always happening. She frowned at me, a face of many words, most saying, don't get smart with me. A sheet of a few hundred mirrors flew over us, and the chicks below gabbled, their peeps and rustling little wings calling attention. The entire headland sounded like this, the ground a sort of intermittent clamor. The globe used to be laced with land bridges, but for a few short swims you could have walked all the way from Australia to North America during the Pleistocene, crossing the lowlands of what is now Micronesia, up Asia, and across to Alaska. Records of dead, drowned corals and submerged shorelines around the world stand as testament to the rise. Craig Childs has written for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, men's journal Outside the Sun in Orion. His new book is Apocalyptic Planet, Field Guide to the Ever-Ending Earth. Thank you for joining me, Craig. I'm glad to be here. Partway through this book, you tell us that, and you make this statement, I have a peculiar way of looking at time. And I think that's one of the unifying themes of this book, is that you ratchet us back and give us a perspective of the world instead of the hurly-burly of current events in terms of geological time. Yeah, it's it's something that comes from just being out there, I think. You, you spend time in 
the natural world where you see erosion and tectonics and all these processes going on around you. So you're not just thinking about time here and now uh, or the, these moments of, the, of human life. You're, you're thinking about how long it takes for a mountain range to appear and how long it takes for it to erode away. And, and so I, I guess time for me just, just takes on all these different elements, you know, both the human life, these, these, these moments we live in, but also the, uh, the much bigger stretches going out to the evolution of the planet. That's one of the things I love about this book is that you do such a great job of balancing between the stories in each segment and how they contribute to the whole story uh, that the book tells of the planet. And uh, to begin with, you give us, uh, just at the very beginning, you mention the definition of apocalypse. And we all have one idea, which is basically a giant meteor hits the planet and blows it into pieces and then goes spinning out like a lifesaver you stepped on on the sidewalk. Yeah, yeah. But that's not the only uh, meaning of the word apocalypse, is right, it? Right, right. I, I go back to the original definition uh, from the Greek where it meant the peeling back of layers and revealing what is underneath, often referring to a mystery that's hidden. And you peel away this exterior and you see the mystery. That's what apocalypse means. It's the act of doing that. And I think, yeah, you know, smashing the planet with an asteroid, that, that peels back some layers and you see what it's about. But also, um, I, I think that these dramatic changes to the Earth or these landscapes that show dramatic changes, they peel back the layers of, of human understanding where then you can start to see how this planet works because I, I don't think we, we really know individually. We, we live in this very human uh, insulated world and, and there's this much bigger world going on around us and I guess with this book I'm trying to peel back those layers. I'm trying to use apocalypse as we see it now as this idea of catastrophic destruction as a tool to, to take the layers back and you can, you can see what's underneath. You can see how this planet really behaves. The book begins with, I think, and I love this, uh, a personal apocalypse on the part of your aunt. And I, and I think that's interesting, too. That works into this idea of scale that you have. And, yeah. and your, your aunt is, is worried about the end of the world, but she can't really wrap her brain around the fact that her whole life has experienced its own kind of apocalypse. Yeah, I think our uh, apocalypses are coming all the time. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, just, just in the morning, where are my socks? It's the morning apocalypse. I can't find my socks, and i got to get it out of the house. And, I, and I'm trying to take it to that level just to say, hey, the, the, there are all these endings and breakdowns, and they, they happen on all scales. And I guess when, when you brought up the fact that I think about time and all and all these different scales. I, I think about events happening, you know, just just standing at the beach and watching waves born and disappearing. There are these constant endings, constant little apocalypses going on. And then, you know, of course, you explode that out to the much larger level of global climate change, uh, um, you know, super volcanoes just just scrubbing the atmosphere with with, uh, with climate change and gases, you know, all kinds of major changes, but they're all these, uh, these peeling back the layers. You created this book 
um, by going to nine different environments. And I'd like you to talk about coming up with this idea of, say, okay, I'm going to look at how the world changes and could change in these nine very different places, yeah. and then setting up some of the travel plans, which sounds like a lot of fun, really. Yeah. Oh, just, just figuring out which landscapes are the, the, the perfect analogs for different endings, mm -hmm. um, each landscape being a, a certain kind of elemental earth, you know, drawn back to the, these very reduced layers and and then I, I just plot a trip. I just go, okay, I'm going to walk across this desert, um, you know, put as much water as I can on my back and, and move caches into it and, and tell the story out there. And it's, you know, that's really almost, for me, more important than the writing. The writing is the byproduct of the journey, and I'm doing it for the journey. I'm doing it so I can go out there and experience this question or this answer firsthand and then I scribble it down in my notebook as it's happening. Now, so you would use a like a moleskin notebook and a pen. Yeah, yeah, just a, a little palm-sized uh, paper notebook, and and uh, just carry a pen around with me. And I, I'm always always scratching it down. When when you uh, go back and uh, edit those those uh, notebooks, you put presumably you sit down in front of a computer. Do you ever find you can't read your handwriting? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, and and it changes depending on the environment. Like writing uh, on the Greenland ice sheet, mm -hmm. when when you had probably five seconds to take off your your glove and write, and then you could feel your knuckles just starting to burn, and you'd have to put your glove back on. So it's it's really scratched and and rapid. So, so the notebooks themselves, in a sense, and the handwriting itself tells part of your story. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the things I love about this book is your sense of story because you get out there and in every place you give us characters in different landscapes, different characters, and I, I just think it makes the book really involving and gets us caught up in each chapter and then also the chapters build up into this sweep. So there's a kind of... Uh, uh, exactly what you're hoping for, an onion-like layering away in the book itself. Yeah, and I, I, I feel like uh, nonfiction gets away with too much lack of story. I, f I feel like it should read like a novel. It should have all those elements of classic storytelling, and, and it's too easy for me to, to just say, oh, let me just explain this to you and describe it to you I I want to I want to bring in the characters I want to I want to bring in an, a sense of movement so that you're you're kind of carried through it that's what well, that's what makes the book so interesting the journeys now uh, you uh, t start start out in the desert and so uh, you talk about uh, the desert um, very, uh, it's really a beautiful and kind of scary place. And the things you do, just I, I've got to say, that seems kind of crazy. <laughs> well, yeah. Taking off your shoes. Uh, well, I mean, and it doesn't <laughs> seem to a degree like you planned it very much. Right. I don't plan a lot of these trips. I, I, I is mean, that I, deliberate? No, it's just a function of my life. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> Uh, for the when we crossed the Atacama Desert in South America, I, I probably on the day that I was flying out, I, I went, oh, this you know this is a fairly serious expedition here. Um, let's see, what do I have? And just opening up my pack and throwing things in it, and I packed for probably about an hour, for that whole trip. 
and and you know it's just and it's also because I'm really used to going off on these long desert crossings so I just grab water bottles and and I just think okay what's the temperature range going to be here I'll get the right clothes um, but you know there is an element of craziness to it uh, of that that trip that the, that the book starts with mm-hmm. in Sonora Mexico I think for the food packing we just we stopped at an Asian market in Phoenix and just we were just grabbing things off the shelves. We didn't even know what they were, um, and some of them were just horrific. <laughs> and and you know, just saying, do we have the right balance of protein to carbohydrates? Yes. Okay, let's go. <laughs> you know, uh, when you talk about the desert, it things you you tell us that we learn are are pretty shocking and surprising. That uh, you know, it took only three hundred years you say, for the Sahara Desert to change from what is essentially kind of a lush landscape to what we have now. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's like extremely frightening. Yeah, it's a staggering pace, and it's it's something that, that happens fairly easily. Um, it's, the North Africa has flipped back and forth over, over millions of years, where it just, uh, the system changes. It's in a marsh, uh, grassland phase, and then the monsoons get bumped north, and the rain doesn't fall anymore, and the whole place just changes entirely. That happened about six thousand years ago. Before, before that, it was it was a really different landscape, and then it turned within three hundred years into the desert we know now. That that can happen in a lot of different parts of the world. That's that doesn't bode well for the middle of the United States. No, and and actually, while I was out on one of these chapters in the Midwest. There was this meteorological anomaly going on called a heat dome mm-hmm. that that pushed the jet stream into Canada, and and that sounds kind extremely of, bad. Yeah, and that's that's what happened in Africa. Except our our jet stream came back down again, but in Africa it just pushed it out and it didn't come back. Um, and, but I was watching it happen. Now, uh, there's this uh, word you use that. Uh, again, frightening desertification. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you talk about how uh, fast that happens, and, and how this kind of creep that we see is happening right now. Yeah, it can happen really fast. It can uh, a piece of land can become desertified within a year. It, it tends to be a little slower. It tends to take years, decades. Uh, where I live in Colorado, we're seeing these new kinds of dust storms coming in in the spring, blowing out of the desert in Utah and coating the mountains with, with this red dust. So all the, the snow turns red, which absorbs heat from the sun and melts faster. So, so we're losing our snowpack a month earlier. And you've got a, a red, blood red snowpack running down the side of the mountain? Yeah, yeah. It can't be a good sign. No, no, it's not. And it changes, you know, that's our main water supply, our water storage. Um, you know, in, in the dry west is snowpack. And we lose it a month early. That means uh, irrigation has to shut down a month early uh, on the other end of summer. And, and you see this kind of just from the blowing sand from, from an intensifying desert in Utah, the desert is just creeping its fingers up into the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. And, you know, it could turn around at any time. But you see the process just just inching forward of, of the land drying out. Now, what I love about this chapter is this, these visions of you and your friend, um, Devin, kind of stumbling across the desert, taking off your clothes, taking off your shoes, and oh my God, I just, I've, 
Yeah, we whittled down. We yeah. uh, as the trip went on, we we left our boots behind, and then we left our pants behind, and we were just wearing f- fabric sarongs and and shirts and and carrying water. I, I don't know how much I, I got into the the fine details, but in the book, but I was I had a wool serape that that I slept in. And I just I got rid of my my pack finally and wrapped my water and food in the serape and just strapped it onto my back and and so we were just you know ourselves being peeled down layer by layer and it was just it was more the land doing this to us you know we just realized oh the boots are really not necessary they're they're in fact kind of clumsy it's easier to go barefoot so get rid of those the pants they're not working because the pockets just fill with sand and you need to you need to adjust the shade on your legs through the day and so we went with the sarongs and i had to cut my shirt pockets open uh just take a knife to the bottom of them because they the blowing sand would just fill them within 10 minutes boy <laughs> now uh you mentioned too the Graham Ackland model. This is not good news either, in terms of especially when we come to quote global warming as right. it used to be called. Yeah, he did a very simple, uh, simple computer model of a of a of a round planet with a sun, and and the only things living on it were black and white daisies. It's a it's a commonly used model uh, for for. Uh, the, the daisies kind of modify the, the climate, keep it at a, uh, at a even, even temperature. But he found that when he bumped up the, the temperature by a certain amount, deserts started to form exactly where they're forming, where they have formed throughout Earth's history, uh, north and south of the equators, and, or the equator. Then when he bumped up the temperature past a certain threshold, the deserts just started spreading wildly all over the place. And even if he dropped the temperature, the deserts kept going. So there was this threshold at which the entire planet was covered with deserts and the uh, model just just failed. The planet died. All the flowers uh, no longer existed. So he saw that there is a runaway point where you can't pull it back. The deserts just keep going. You take us to the opposite kind of climate or what seems like the opposite kind of climate, uh, the North Patagonian ice field. You're filming a, a movie there and the story, what, what I like is these little stories because we, in the first one we have you and Devin stumbling across the desert and here we have this kind of a bumbling movie crew. Uh, there's all sorts of goofy stuff that happens with the, filming the movie while also you're in the midst of this astonishing landscape work giant change is just absolutely right in your face it's melting right in front of your eyes yeah and it's it's the juxtaposition of the two <laughs> of of our lives of of people crawling down into a crevasse to have sex while we're out there filming on the on the glacier uh just all this all this live human activity while around us the the giant pieces of ice are caving in and and uh, waterfalls are coming out everywhere the the ice is retreating rapidly and it's just this scoured destroyed landscape because it's all been under glaciers and now it's freshly exposed and and boy what a what a powerful place to wander around while you're with just these these gang this gang of just people out there having a wild time just going nuts just just free for all as we went on this expedition it was an amazing combination 
you know, you do such a good job of describing the place because one thing you, when you we think of ice scapes and winter scapes, I was thinking of quiet, but for the way you describe it, it's filled with these explosions as the ice is cracking in, around you. Yeah, yeah, it's a loud place. It's uh, it's like fireworks going off, and and they're going off inside of these stone valleys so you hear the echoes all over the place one explodes and you just hear this boom 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 it's and then the water is is flowing underneath you in the glaciers it's a very loud place now at one point you talk to a scientist who tells us that the radiation from the sun has declined a bit and this is something we're gonna we need to cover I think very specifically because to my mind there's a bit of fodder in this book for people who say oh climate change it's not human driven it's just happening naturally we might as well just go right ahead and do whatever we want because mm-hmm. it's not going to make a whit of difference but I that's make several statements in the book that that's clearly not the case and I'd just like you to talk a little bit about that your experience of that on the ground in, when you're out there in nature um and yourself maybe not feeling so particularly significant. Uh, how, how do you square what we're actually, you know, what we're told at least we're doing to the planet? Yeah, it's, it's, to me it's very clear. Um, you look just on a, a visual level, you see that we've changed wholesale landscapes around the globe. So you know that we're causing visible change. But then there's, a, there's the chemical change that's very easily recorded, CO level, CO2 levels uh, going up the way they are. You, you, you see it very clearly that, that we are affecting things, that, that we are fragmenting habitats and, and causing extinctions. Um, we're introducing non-native species globally at an unprecedented rate. So we are directly altering the future of this planet. And... And it's, it was a hard thing to write about in this book because I also wanted to say, the planet's going to be fine. You know, we may do awful things, but come back in 10 million years and it'll look great. <laughs> but, you know, we don't have 10 million years. We, we're looking at now and we're looking at how much we are changing the world. So I, I guess in this book, I'm, and I didn't know this going into it. I, wa- I was open to what possibilities were there. I concluded that... that uh, the major forcing mechanism of change right now on the planet is humans. That that there is nothing that that is bigger than us. There are some processes that are, you know, seasons, the sun just being there, but there are processes that aren't changing things. That are just that are keeping this world moving in in cycles. We are outside of cycles. We are an episode. We are a thing coming in like an asteroid, like a, a, a volcanic eruption. We are something that is significant and, and um, standing out in geologic time. That's a great way of putting it. Yeah, the human asteroid. Right. We, <laughs> we are. It's a little bit slower, but not that much slower. And equally destructive. Uh, one of the things you mentioned in, in the portion about the, that you call ice collapses are the glacier statistics which are again yet another uh literally chilling yeah yeah it's it's the the rate of disappearance is amazing i don't remember exactly what it is there were hundreds of uh glaciers in glacier national park in the late 1800s and now it's down to i think 20 26 glaciers yeah it's 
So just on that level alone, you can see things are changing. Now you can say, oh yeah, well, we're coming out of a glacial cycle that ended you know, 12,000 to 18,000 years ago. Um, so yes, glaciers are naturally melting by where the earth is right now in its, in its phase, but they're melting really fast. They're picking up speed. This isn't just this isn't just a gradual melt. This is getting down to the last last bits. And even the polar regions, where you know, 30 years ago they were considered just stable, that they don't change at all. We're discovering that oh, they're in motion, and and they are not being replaced at the rate at which they're they're losing ice. So there's there's definitely a trend going on here. It's the albedo feedback cycle that. As you reduce the ice, you increase the you decrease the reflectivity and yeah. increase the amount of, you know, nice brown ground to absorb the heat. Yeah. So we're holding on to more heat. Yeah. And and if the the calculation right now the the amount of heat that's being conserved on Earth is uh, if if this amount had been constant over the last ten thousand years, all the ice in the world would be gone. So this is an unusual time. We are holding on to more heat than we have in the past. Drink your margaritas now. Yeah, yeah. Make sure to enjoy your salt because <laughs> yeah. there's going to be a bunch of it. One thing you say, and I think this is an interesting comment, we all want the Holocene to last. <laughs> yeah, this, this last 10,000 years has been great. <laughs> Good for us, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the Ice Age has ended and, uh, and it's moist, warm, climates you know around most of the planet it, it's it's the great time to be here but it's not the uh it's not the norm for the earth this is an unusual time we're we're in the salad bowl right now and and i don't think we really recognize that i think i think you know we all want this to last we want green grass and happy sun and all that but that's not what the planet always shows there are many different sides and so i'm kind of arguing this is something you don't want to let go of. You want to actually work to save it. You want to work to keep it in place. The Holocene is, you know, I want a bumper sticker that says save the Holocene because <laughs> I love it. I, and I think we all do. And it would be very different if we lost this, this kind of environment we live in. Well, I, one of the things that your book made me think was that not only do we have to combat what we ourselves have done in the past, say, 400 years to the climate, we have to start thinking, well, God, the Earth is, con what we can do is pretty microscopic to what the Earth may bring about. So we may have to figure out some way to deal, you know, we're crushing ourselves with a thumb. We have to get ready for the boot to come down. Right, right. What the, the, the difficulties we face right now are marginal. They're... <laughs> I, we, I sometimes look at us and go, "Wow, we're we're kind of struggling along. We we're, you know, we're 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 booming definitely as a species, and but we are just riddled with warfare and and you know, in different populations, disease, and and I'm looking at it going, God, what if there was a, what if a, a super volcano did happen, or yeah. some something that we just don't have on our radar that that just threw us off? I, you know, I I think." we don't realize how good we've got it right now that, that what we're doing to ourselves is, is right. It's, 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 it's a thumb pressing down compared to if this planet decided to roll, then it would be just, just dropping the safe on, on top of our heads. 
Oh, so we're all Wiley e. Coyote now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and you wanted to be Roadrunner. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, you take it very nicely, too, I thought. Take us out of the... Um, you actually leave the landscape of ice. And I love the way you do this. I think the writing is beautiful and the way you put the book is beautiful. You leave the landscape of ice and end out in the ocean. And then we're talking, looking at how the ocean is rising. And you talk about the, the land bridge. And this, it's nice. This, I love this story with your mother, where you travel with your mother to go, as you put it, going to where the world changes. So talk about the Bering Strait. And one of the things I love, too, is gravity measurement. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, to tell exactly how much ice or how much water is, is, is on the planet, you can, you can see the gravity increasing in some places and decreasing in others. And you can, you can see that there is a, there's a definitely a shift going on from ice to water. Uh, sea levels are, are are rising, and they rise differently all around the world. It's not a there is no such thing as one sea level. That's one of the things that I thought was very interesting. You know, your book made me. Uh, here's my question: What is the sea level? Right, and there is no sea level. It, it changes. In fact, California is probably going to be seeing a really dramatic rise. I'm imagining over the next ten to fifteen years. Not just because of sea level rise, but because there there is a shift uh, in wind currents, and it's a it's an oscillation that that happens. I don't know what the what the sequence is, but it, it's sometimes it's blowing toward Asia, and it's pushing the Pacific up, so it's higher on, in Asia, and then the wind pattern turns around and it blows toward North America, which then tilts the ocean, so it, it gets higher on the on the um, the uh, west coast so you have all these oddities going on and so that's why it's it's hard to measure sea level because it's changing on so many different levels but if you look at it in the long term which is what i did in this book by going up to the bering sea Mm -hmm. you you see that oh it is coming up uh sea levels are are very mercurial they they change they definitely change because the island that I traveled to with my mother, uh, St. Lawrence Island, it's, it's off the coast of Siberia, an, an Alaskan island. Um, it's the last standing piece from the middle of the Bering Land Bridge. So if you had gone there 15,000 years ago, you would have been 500 miles from the nearest shoreline standing on that island. And, and that's when sea levels were about 340 feet lower. So they have come up and just uh, erased that landscape and left this island sticking out. And I just I wanted to stand there and say, okay, so you don't believe in sea level rise? Well, here it is. It it happened, and this is all that's left. So let's let's just look to the future and say this just keeps going. What happens? Well, low lying areas get inundated. What's happening right now? Sea level rise is accelerating. It's measurable. Gravity measurements are showing that seas are expanding. So, and they're they're not just expanding at a constant rate. They're they're speeding up. Not in North Carolina. Now you know this. Not in North Carolina. They they took any mention of climate yes. change out of the textbook. Yes, <laughs> I and and maybe they're wise to do that. Just just cover your eyes and and plug your ears and and hope it's not happening. Neener neener neener. Because it might be true. I mean, that's I interview climate skeptics in here, climate change skeptics and 
I, at the end of every interview I did with him, I just thought, oh, I hope you're right. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't see any evidence for that. Well, you may make an, a keen observation that um, that you think the the even the whales are probably noticing this, and I thought that was really a, a smart thought. Yeah, there's there is a new evidence that that I mentioned in here on a that a, a whale was was killed recently, and uh, a harpoon from the 1880s was found in it, and That's so that amazing. Yeah, we realize that these these whales are living for two hundred years, and they're they're traveling. It's you know in the Bering Sea, they're traveling along this shallow sea. So they are probably very well aware of the distance between the ground and the and the surface of of the Bering Sea. You know, they're traveling through gaps and corridors, and I just imagine in this book, oh, if they if they've been alive for two hundred years, they've probably noticed that. That new passages have opened, that the the seas are are slowly deepening, something we can't see because we only live seventy, eighty, a hundred years. Yeah, so it'd be like if well, it's something we might see in a city. You drive through a city, and first there's one story of buildings, and there's two story of buildings. Then you're driving through skyscrapers. I guess that's the analogy there. Yeah, yeah, and we think even now we kind of think, oh, that's what this is. <laughs> This doesn't change, even though that changes every five years or yeah. ten years. We, if we're just driving through, we don't, we don't know. You don't notice it when you're just driving through the one time. And cities figure into this, too. You talk about uh, Phoenix being built on the ruins of another city. It's like an H.P. Lovecraft story. Yeah, it's just <laughs> layers, it's, and, and they're, they're kind of they're connected mm-hmm. because you look, at, uh, you look at Phoenix and you go back a thousand years and there's a, a prehistoric civilization there that's doing the same thing that Phoenix is doing now a, a, a irrigation based urban center where they were growing corn and cotton back then cotton being the primary crop of these uh, pre-Columbian people Ho-ho- cotton is hohokam hohokam yeah and and cotton is now the primary crop of Phoenix and and uh, it and they're both based on the same same physical model, the same layout of, of canals, exactly the same places. All the little city centers. I mean, you look down at Phoenix and you see it has no real downtown, no, no real core like most cities do. It has many cores. Those cores are all uh, based on, on irrigation headgates. So it's, it's, a, it's a hydraulic city, which is what it was before. That, that can't be a good sign. No, the, the the people before it it collapsed for them too, and I imagine it will collapse for for Phoenix as well. And I, you know, I don't like to think that. I like to think, oh yes, we're gonna we are going to live proudly forever, but uh, it doesn't happen. Well, we'll install ourselves in video games. Right, and then <laughs> and and then they'll crash. Yeah. <laughs> or, or the cartridges will no longer work. Yeah. Well, we'll be trying to put our the VHS version of me in a DVD player. Yeah, it's yeah. See, that's work. the end of the, everybody who exists on VHS. You're you, you have faced your apocalypse. It's over. <laughs> um, you also talk about how civilization falls, and you say top-heavy infrastructure, income disparity, uh, disease, conflict, and this sounds well like now. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how I th- I think that the the fundamental principles that drive human societies, drive civilization, have not really changed. We still eat food, we still drink the water, breathe the air. Um, so so the reasons for ancient collapses are going to be the same reason for our own collapses. Um, and, and I'm not predicting an end of civilization in this book because I have, I'm have i looking around and going, well, there's to me, there's no evidence that civilization is going to be collapsing anytime soon. But there's plenty of evidence that it does collapse mm-hmm. and that and that the, the underpinnings fall out from underneath you. And you look at the underpinnings of our own civilization and you can see weak points everywhere. You can see where the cracks would form and the whole thing would, would collapse. I'm not anticipating it soon, you know, not December 2012. Well, but you do mention that the Mayans had a pretty quick and not necessarily happy uh, downfall. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was, uh, I guess you could say it was catastrophic, but it was also uh, a mosaic. You know, while some cities were burning, other cities were rising. The lowland jungle Mayans really, it, it fell out from underneath them. That, that the whole thing fell apart. But then the highland Mayans were kind of rising up. So it is, yeah, it is catastrophic. You really see it happen. You see bodies on the ground in the archaeological record. You see malnutrition in the bones. You see bad endings. But it's not the same everywhere. I don't think that, I guess one of the things I'm proposing in this book is that civilization has never fallen. That it just keeps moving from place to place, from one ethnicity or society to another. Um, a city will dissolve and another one will rise. We've we've been passing the baton, but you see collapses throughout. It's an analog of the William Gibson quote: "The future has arrived; it's just not evenly distributed." <laughs> exactly. It it is it is here, and and we we don't all know about it yet. Yeah, the apocalypse has <laughs> arrived. We just haven't. Some of us haven't noticed yeah. it yet. For all the global warming, you then take us quickly up to the ice sheets of Greenland, where your fingers were uh, presum- presumably freezing. Yes. <laughs> uh, what interests me about that is how dry these climates are. You think of ice, you think it's ice, it's water, it's wet, but it's these are underneath, these are deserts. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't snowing where we were. The snow was building up because it was blowing in from... From hundreds of miles away and there was nothing to stop it from blowing it just kept tumbling across the ice sheet but but it's it there's really very little precipitation in in the place where I was staying it, it was this was just snow coming from far away it's a it's a desert it's a really interesting story too <laughs> with the with the people at, in in Greenland it it was a, a camp of six six researchers a couple hundred miles out, the flight was a was I think two hundred miles to to land out there, and uh, and I went in with a with this chaos researcher named Jose Real from North Carolina University, and we were the first ones to open the camp, and the the camp was practically destroyed when we got there. It had been destroyed over the winter, and so it was kind of it was a big mess, and days and days of shoveling, and the rest of the crew showing up, and and just you know sitting around the table at night talking about the end of the world talking about climate change <laughs> we uh we had a lot of great conversations um 
and these are the people who know the the head of the camp is I think that was his thirtieth season on the ice on on polar ice. So he's been watching this for a long time. So I, I went to some key people, people who've really been on the ground, who mm-hmm. who know the numbers, who know the science, and they can see a larger picture because they're not just in a box looking at numbers. They're out on the ice sheet figuring it out. That's the that's what happens to us as readers when we read this book. It's a it's like one of those camera pans that pulls back, and you know, at first you're like on the street, and you go, "Oh my God, there's all you know, I can see my house from up here." Yeah, yeah, and that's you can't see your house. that's my plan. Is I I want to I want to keep bringing a reader down to the human level, just our lives and the, the links of these these instances we're in, and then show this this planet and show the the changes over thousands and then millions of years or even billions of years. We're also in the midst of yet another uh, species extinction. This is the sixth species ex- extinction. And your approach to this, I think, is really interesting because you were talking about the species, uh, non-native species, invasion of non-native species. But what you're really documenting here, in this book at least, is essentially a non-terrestrial species. <laughs> Genetically modified corn isn't like anything that's ever been mm-hmm. on Earth before. And the way it grows is is rather frightening. I mean, it makes children of the corn look like a happy, happy place. Right. I went backpacking through these GMO fields. And, and uh, you know, I, I have to say, I, I had the children of the corn thing on my mind going into it where I you know, I thought, because I planned this trip for about a year, and I just went, oh, what happens to people who go into the corn? You know, what kind of terrifying things? But it was so hot and miserable, I could care less if children came out with knives. <laughs> you know, I was just, I, I was, it was so miserable, such a, it was the hardest trip in this book. Well, you talk about uh, monocultures and, and, you know, the dangers of those, how the, the the Lystrosaurs at the end of the was it the end Permian? of the Permian yeah, Permian, yeah. I, I, that's such an interesting vision of just a, a planet of pig sized dinosaurs yeah yeah and and they made it through this huge extinction ninety uh, percent uh, of of life on Earth was was uh, was gone and this this one animal made it through and their fossils show up all over the place so it was a monoculture. Um, 250 million years ago, and and uh, without those animals making it through, there would be no mammals and there would be no dinosaurs, thus no birds. So it was just this one making it through the gap, and and I'm kind of looking at today and saying, well, it's the same. We are working on species preservation. The ones that we lose are the ones that are not going to be making making it through the gap. They are not making the future of this planet. You talk about anhydrous ammonia as the largest addition made to croplands, and that doesn't sound good. No. <laughs> it's it's also one of the primary chemicals used to make uh, meth. Oh. Well. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> and, and they what just... What surprise meth culture is growing. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> it's it's applied to the soils. It, it dramatically increases yield. Mm-hmm. And it's it's something that everybody uses. It's not really. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I 
don't imagine organic growers use it, but I, I haven't really pursued that <laughs> that question. It's just, it's such a common thing that, that farmers don't think about it. And it's just put into the soils early on every season. And, uh, you know, you go and you fill up your tank with it. And it's, it's if you got one whiff of it, it, it can be fatal. And mm-hmm. it's, it's just plugged into the soil. And it, it, it's basically, it's a fertilizer. It's a petroleum-based fertilizer that then dramatically, I think, uh, fourfold increases yield. You also suggest, and I think this is an interesting thought, that the ideas of wilderness and biodiversity, that those are really slippery terms. They're not, we say that we throw them out, but what they mean is very contextual. Yeah, because it does, it, it felt like a wilderness to be backpacking through corn because it, it fit one of my definitions, which is... Uh, a place where you can disappear instantly, <laughs> and and uh, and then it, I guess in another another definition, it fit. It was outside, <laughs> but everything else was not wilderness. It was a completely controlled landscape. Every corn seed planted by a satellite-driven combine. Uh, so it's it's a it's a totally contrived human landscape. It is nothing but humanity in the form of corn. So it's not wilderness at all. And then biodiversity, um, you know, there's obviously very little di- diversity in these places. But but I did find this little forest on the edge of the corn that that to me was diverse. It was it was this rich, lush place. And then I was talking to E.O. Wilson, the, the biologist, and and he he was telling me, oh, you can't even call that a forest. It's not, there's no, the diversity there is so low. Yes, it's more than corn, but, but here, let me break it down for you. Let me tell you what exactly you were looking at. You, without a botanist's eye, you didn't see that you were in yet another genetic desert. That's a scary thought. Would deserts uh, run through this book? There, the idea that there could be a variety of deserts is, is a frightening thought. Yeah, and it's, you know, for me, I'm desert-born. I My life has always been around deserts, and I see deserts as these marvelous places. And But I see deserts that have existed for a long time that have reached their biotic equilibrium, that they are they are rich in species. and uh, But these newly formed deserts, the deserts of corn, the, the deserts of freshly exposed mountains after ice has retreated, those are the difficult ones where deserts are just born like that. Now, you uh, also uh, got to go to Tibet, and one of the things you say is, and this is really fascinating, well, among the many fascinating things in this book, as you say, is that the Tibetan plateau is a planet changer. Who knew? Not yeah. me. Yeah, it it uh, it changes the way that weather patterns work, um, but in a longer sense, the rising of a mountain range actually consumes CO2 out of the atmosphere and puts it into freshly exposed rock that runs down rivers and is dropped to the bottom of the ocean and does not affect climate. You know, you can, the CO2 uh, cannot keep the climate warm. So when you have these massive mountain ranges coming up, like the Tibetan Plateau, it just it's a, it scrubs the atmosphere and it cools the planet. And so for the last 40 million years or so, the planet has been growing continuously colder now that when we talk about global warming happening right now that's just a spike that could last thousands of years and i'm talking tens of millions of years so 
So if this mountain range kept rising, theoretically, it could it could sink the earth into a, a deep freeze. And you mentioned at one point in the book that the, that the earth has been entirely covered with ice. Yeah, it's happened before. It it, it uh, you know we think of glacial periods you know, when half of North America is covered with ice as being extreme, but there were periods. It, it looks like the entire planet was just this white globe. The equatorial seas would have would have been just crowded with icebergs. You know where where now it's tropical and warm. So there there have been times in Earth's history that have been very different. And, and you say too that. Uh, a planet with plate te- tectonics is that is what makes life itself possible. Right, right. That's what uh, some uh, planetary geologists are looking for on other planets, or at least what they hope to see on a planet outside of the solar system, and is one that has mountain ranges and continents, which is a sign that the surface is constantly moving and shifting, which is moving chemical balances around and it, it makes for an unstable planet i mean venus is a good example that that place is too hot it, the too many volcanoes too much activity mars just has one tectonic plate it's it's a single plate planet there's not a lot going on earth seems to be right in the middle the right balance where it's not so unstable that that it's just fuming gases non-stop but it's not so stable that it's just weatherless all of what we've been talking about so far is pretty much apocalypse by the rending of veils we're lifting veils and looking back through different layers of time and seeing different visions of the way things were but you also talk about cataclysms about things just blowing up and here in the u.s we have our very own apocalypse waiting to happen right in the center it's a national park yeah, Yosemite. That, that's a good one. I, I don't imagine it's going to be happening soon. It's I, I mean, well, there were some there were some alarming signs a, a couple of years back. I seem to remember. Yeah, and that got everybody excited. Mm-hmm. But if you looked closely <laughs> at the details, where people were saying, "Oh, we're we're due for uh, an eruption right now," it's that means we're within the the. Like forty thousand year window in which it could happen, um, but it could. That's a that is a a super volcano that has erupted numerous times in the past, and will probably erupt again. And you know, volcanoes in themselves, just regular volcanoes, change the climate. They tend to cool things down. Um, if you had a super volcano go off, which is um, you know like. 20, 30, 40 regular volcanoes all blowing up at once in one spot, that would dramatically change the climate. And then we'd no longer be talking about anthropogenic influence. We would, we would suddenly be reduced, you know, our, our being on the throne of, of changing the planet would be over. <laughs> Something else will have moved in and changed the planet way beyond us. And you also talk about... Uh, all we have to do is go out at night and look at the moon, and mm-hmm. we can see a good example of what you call the late heavy bombardment. Maybe that sounds bad as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, just over four billion years ago, when uh, there was a, a gravitational disruption in the in the uh, asteroid belt, and it just said sent asteroids flying everywhere. The, all the all the rocky interior planets like Mars, Earth, Venus, they were just pummeled. And, and you can, that's what you're seeing when you look at the moon. A lot of the, uh, the big craters and the, the big formerly molten basins, 
they that was all formed by or primarily formed by these just constant bombardments of asteroids and and so theoretically the earth was resurfaced at that time or most of the earth was resurfaced <laughs> now that that is a really frightening concept the earth being resurfaced yeah you don't want to you don't want to <laughs> be around like, that's yeah. hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy <laughs> yeah it's 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 a bad time and you know it's possible that parts survived um there's no record of life from that time although there are records that are beginning to appear that show the earth there was an earth like the one we're on now before the bombardment and then the bombardment just basically erased it and maybe life survived and then appeared again and started up the life life as we know it that's one of the theories but you know there's a theory that life existed before that a world much like ours was around and then the planet was was turned molten again and I, as you say we if we have if we stay with business as usual the 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 earth our business as usual the earth will be uninhabitable and and for all this apocalypse the after party you you give us a vision of is the seas boiling not yeah. not a good yeah. idea either I, I don't i don't take it to a good place but you know i kind of i go out there because i i want to say this planet does have an evolution that the this planet will die someday the the sun will will go red giant on us and then collapse and blow out the outer shell and probably just, uh, you know, if anything survived the red giant phase, nothing's going to survive the explosion when the sun goes into a, a planetary nebula afterwards. So I, I want to carry it out there and go, this planet will die. And my logic is, is therefore, the planet is alive. If, if it is capable of dying, if it, if it is capable of having the seas boil away, the, the electromagnetic sphere disappears and, and there's really nothing left. But even there, you know, I went to the Atacama Desert in South America to write about that. And uh, I found signs of hope, <laughs> which even at the very end, I went, oh, even 10 billion years from now, microbes are probably going to make it not that that's really the world i want to be living in but you know that's how resilient life is on this planet well it's certainly resilient enough maybe they'll write books as good as this one <laughs> thank you i've been speaking with craig childs his new book is apocalyptic planet a field guide to the ever-ending earth thank you for joining me craig sure rick You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.